0: Hey, everybody. My name is Jules. I am a gratefully recovering marijuana addict. and um, very happy to be speaking at this meeting this evening. Um, first off, I want to give a shout out to the phone lines. Thank you so much for having these meetings so consistently and these recorded secret tapes are a really awesome resource for folks that are looking to get some support and step outside of themselves when there may not be a meeting that's going on, if perhaps Zoom is of their choice or in person meetings. And I'm extremely grateful for these recorded speaker tapes for many reasons aside from that as well. But um, anyways, thank you to Jesse for being of service today and welcome to anyone who's new or relatively new. Um, again, my name is Jules, and I am a member of District 20 in San Diego. Um, I started smoking hot when I was 22. It was a little bit of a late bloomer. I had a really strong fear of becoming addicted. My mom is an alcoholic and recovering from addiction to prescription pain medications. And I also have a sister who has dealt with um, the struggles of addiction throughout the majority of my lifetime. And she's also now sober. So it runs in the family for us. Um, and that really struck me in a way that I I didn't really use much. I drank a little when I was a teenager. But like I said, I didn't smoke pot the first time until I was 22. I was in Amsterdam, which, you know, there it's legal very much so, and that kind of gave me a bit more of a green light that it was okay for me to try it, and I was really off to the races from my very first experience. Um, I had an edible, and I thought that, oh, at least I can say I've still never smoked pot. Well, (laughs) that didn't last very long. I was probably about maybe 20 minutes into having digested that when I was like, let's go to a coffee shop and check our email and get a joint. And I was already ready to start using it, you know, in different ways right on the first day of trying it. Um, For me, it it very much so kind of went from this like miracle substance that I would use for all kinds of ailments that I was telling myself, you know, it was great for this and that. And it definitely, um, you know, I felt that it helped me to release a lot of the like stress and anxiety that I carry around perfectionism and being more of a type A person. I felt like I was kind of able to chill for the first time without you know, the hangovers and getting sick from drinking and such. Um, So it quickly moved into it becoming medicine for me. Um, I used all the time. I was a hairdresser and in school for visual design. And so it was something that I used to help me extend my creative sessions of working and drawing for hours on end. Um, and I felt like it made me more creative when it came to hairdressing too. Uh, not long after, you know, it being medicine, it really started to turn on me after around six years of using all day, every day, I started to, um, well, actually that, I'll step back for just a moment. So I was traveling with friends. We went to a lake, uh, on the border of California and Arizona, that's called Lake Havasu. And it was my best friend's bachelor and bachelorette weekend. Now, I had children already at this time. I was what I felt to be a very responsible person. Um, Even though I was using all day, every day, I really was living in that fantasy of functionality. And we had stopped at, like, this one sandbar that it was very clear water. And for those of you that have ever been to Lake Havasu, it's really big for cliff diving and jumping off of, um, you know, 20-foot, 30-foot cliffs into the lake and so when we stopped at a spot that it was very clear and you could see the sand the water was about to my thigh about five foot five and we shared a joint there and then we went on to our next destination so this next spot we stopped at was closer to a cliff um the water was very dark and murky it was kind of some reeds towards the front of the boat where we had pulled up against the cliff but i just assumed that it was a much steeper drop off than it was and decided, oh, I have to go pee real quick, and then I'm going to get back on the boat and make everybody sandwiches, um, as you're probably already cringing. I hit the bottom of the water with the front of my forehead, and I broke my neck. I was not aware at the time that my neck was broken. I was not paralyzed in any capacity. I did not lose consciousness, um, and it. I just kind of went along with the rest of the day. I knew that I was hurting kind of having some pain I had a friend that was like massaging my neck time to find out later on that that friend actually saved my life I had one of my vertebral arteries which is one of the main arteries that goes to your brain had been nicked by a fragment of the bone in my neck and it was bleeding internally so this friend unknowingly clotted an artery uh, to my brain and it's still clotted to this day Um, but I have obviously a normal brain function and I make do with three functional arteries. Um, So with the whole 24 hours getting back to San Diego, it's about to go get my kids and I'm like, you know what, I think I need to go to the hospital, I'm having a lot of muscle spasms. I'm really uncomfortable. So my husband took me to the hospital and was like, yeah, I had a little injury, I don't know, I dove, hit the water. They're like okay they'll take me into an x-ray the first thing they do is they come back in the room is bring a neck brace and tell me that my level of trauma is too high for them to handle um, this is kind of a smaller local hospital and they needed me to go to another one here in san diego that's much bigger so i took an ambulance um and proceeded to have about four hours of surgery where they fused my neck at the cervical levels of 4, 5, and 6. And I have uh, plates and screws and rod in my neck now. Um, the first thing I did when I woke up in the hospital room was find my purse and smoke out of my vape. Even though I had all of this other medication on board, And I was, my throat was really hurting me. They had to intubate me, obviously, during surgery. And they operated from the front and the back of my neck. And so it was, I was very hoarse and having a really hard time speaking. But that was still my priority was to smoke my my vape pen. Um, After getting out of the hospital, I was having a very hard time. I still really couldn't communicate very well. My throat was just, like, so sore, I could, I could really only, like, whisper and barely talk. And the care level at the hospital wasn't great, so my family got hospital bed and brought me home. And about 10 days after surgery, I went back in for a checkup. And at this point, I was extremely confused. I had been trying to not take as much of the pain pills and other medications that they had given me. They had really, like, set me up with a gamut of prescription medications, and I'm not going to name all of them off, but there was about five or six of them. Um, as I mentioned before, my mom's recovering from, you know, alcoholism, but also from painful addiction. And I was pretty young when all of that happened. Uh, and as I said, here I am now, you know, a number of years later, I have children. And I really felt like this was a, a karmic moment where I was going to end up like her. And that if I continued to take the pain pills that I would become veteran in and all of the stuff that happened to her is going to happen to me. Um, So I was like taking pills super randomly and all over the place and then trying to take as much edibles as I could because I thought it would be so much better if I was just, you know, using marijuana instead of all of this prescription pain medication that they were giving me. And so here I come, 10 days after my surgery in for a checkup with the doctor, and I was completely manic. Um, He suggested that I needed to go to the emergency room, and that was the first time that I was held in a 5150 situation where I was in a locked psych ward for 72 hours. It was a really, really difficult time. Um, I detoxed immediately as, you know, they make you do in those situations and every time I would go to bed, they would take my neck brace away from me, and then I would have to wait for them to, like, give it back to me to get up to go to the bathroom or anything like that. I wasn't allowed to take it off when I needed to eat. It was a very difficult and struggling process. So I get out of that situation and tried to stay sober. Um, It didn't last very long, but over the the course of the next four years, I was in and out of having these reoccurring manic episodes. And it, would, it was like, you know, what we would call textbook as we look at life with hope. Um, we have the explanation of first it's a joint and then we're, you know, buying an eighth and then a quarter and then I'm splitting my stash and I'm hiding it in places and I'm trying to control my using And the next thing I know, I'm back in the situation where my family submits me saying I'm unable to control myself or take care of myself Um, and a harm to myself or others is uh, what that 5150 typically hold is for. Uh, So each time I would get out of the hospital, I really never tried very hard to stay sober by counting days or going to a, a A 12-step program. Um, I did try multiple outpatient programs, inpatient programs, went to like one of the nicest inpatient treatment facilities in Arizona. Two times I went to the same place and each time I didn't finish the program I was dead set on wanting to get home to my family thinking that I felt good enough and I was ready to go back. It was always a really hard adjustment period to move back home. Um... Obviously, my husband had lost a lot of trust and faith in me and really wouldn't let me do much in terms of, like, taking the kids to or from school or cooking dinner. The last time that I experienced a manic episode was uh, when I got sober for this term that I'm in now, uh, which was on 4-20 in 2018. I got admitted to the hospital on April 19th, and... I woke up and it was like Happy 420, everybody. Here we are, locked in a psych ward. Uh, <laughs> yay us! <laughs> that was actually the longest stretch of being held um, in a facility that I had experienced like that, where they, you know, usually 72 hours and then you check out. Um, I and I knew the drill. This was the fourth time it had happened to me where I had been in a, a you know, a 5150 hold and i started to set a plan for myself i told them you know i want to go to an outpatient program and i want to find one locally that is for people who are dual diagnosis you know for those who may not know that's for um, someone who has addictive tendencies and mental health Um, i carry the diagnosis of bipolar 2 which i only found out after breaking my neck and so It was a real struggle for me in those four years to determine whether I had a problem with marijuana, if my neck injury had caused me to have bipolar 2, if it was a combination of both. And that struggle put me in a place where I was really sick and tired of being sick and tired. And finally, this last go, I just decided that I need to let go of it. It doesn't matter if it is that I have bipolar 2 or if I'm experiencing marijuana psychosis um, what's most important is that marijuana is not helping me anymore and it's harming me and i wanted to commit to staying sober so um i said about five days in this lost psych unit and when i got out i immediately found a facility that i could go to that was an outpatient program locally um I knew that that wasn't going to be enough and that I was going to have to set myself up for success in the long term. I had dealt with going to facilities and them telling me that marijuana addiction wasn't real. Fortunately, the outpatient program that I chose was not one of those, but that was an experience that I had had previously. And and that type of thought that um, marijuana is innocuous is really what led me to this false idea and ability to understand that there is the... Ability to be addicted to marijuana. Um, it was so much that I didn't even think to Google marijuana 12-step programs. I went so far as to say, somebody should start one like AA for marijuana. And I never even tried to look it up. Um, so I started in AA at the same time as going to my outpatient program. And I would go to an AA meeting every morning at 7 and then immediately go to my outpatient. I was an outpatient until about Two o'clock in the afternoon, I would come home, take care of things around my house, wait for my husband, bring my children home from school, and just spend time with them. My husband was really adamant that it was important for me to focus on myself at that time and my recovery and to just get myself better. Um, it was a really big shift for me because I'm a caregiver and a caretaker, and I want to take care of everybody else set everyone else's needs ahead of my own. But this is one of you know those situations where we say we have to put the mask on ourselves first. And I had to learn how to do that. Um, it was a great experience. I did outpatient program for four months, and all the while, as I said, continued to go to AA meetings. So at my six months of sobriety, my mom invited me to come and take a token at the hall that she goes to. Uh, we don't live close enough where we would ha- typically have meetings together. <clears throat> so I had never really gone to i never really gone to this facility. Um, it was a good meeting, and as she's catching up with her friends, I'm walking around, looking at the different things, checking out the AA board, checking out the non-AA, you know, the board. And that's where I saw uh, a, a flyer for a marijuana anonymous meeting. It blew my mind. I was so excited. It happened to be starting in an hour on that same day, a mile away. And I had plans to go to lunch with my mom. And I said, Mom, I can't go to lunch with you. I have to go to this meeting. I didn't even know that this existed. Uh, So my first in-person MA meeting was like coming home. I felt like the entire time that I was going to AA meetings, it was very clear that they, when I say they, I mean AA tends to really stick to the singleness of purpose. Um, I'm sure you may have heard people talk about being like California sober and with that singleness of purpose, they stopped using alcohol and some of them still use pots. They didn't want to hear me talk about my marijuana use or my marijuana addiction. So I was constantly, uh, like just switching the words when I would share, I was talking about weed, but I was using the words alcohol and, um, it just. You know, it wasn't, it didn't fit right to me. It felt, I, I heard an interesting phrase about that where it's like, we're both speaking English, but we're now speaking the, the right dialect of it. So for me, Marijuana Anonymous is the dialect of English that I speak. Um, hearing the 12 questions was really eye-opening and reading step one, it was like, did they have a camera in my house? Cause they know all the things about me. They know how I used. They know all the things I did. This is crazy. I started to get into service when I was in AA pretty early on. I was about three months into the, you know, into sobriety, and someone was like, hey, your secretary is a Thursday meeting now. And I was like, don't I have to get elected for that? I don't even have the sober time for it. They're like, you're here all the time. You know the deal. No one else wants to do it. You're doing it. So I was like voluntold you know, that I was going to be the secretary. Um, So being in service in AA, I I quickly wanted to be in service in MA. I know the importance of service, that I have to give back what has so freely been given to me in recovery. And frankly, if we don't give back in service, our program can crumble, meetings can dissolve, districts can dissolve. I've seen it all happen. So it's really important to me to be a part of service and recovery, even when I don't want to. And it's not convenient, (laughs) it's important. Um, so I decided very quickly on that I wanted to start an MA meeting closer to me. The one that I went to was about thirty minutes away from my house and I do still go to that in person meeting um every now and then today. Uh it's a great meeting and I'm so, so, so grateful for it and the friendships and I feel like they're family that I've developed in my home group. Um so I had about uh, four or five months in MA because I wanted to see you know, the nuances and how things are done differently in MA before I started an in-person meeting near me. Uh, I, as I started that in-person meeting, I became involved in my local district. I wanted the meeting to be part of the district. I thought that that was really important. And so I started attending the DSC meetings, the district service committee meetings. Um, at that time, this was before Zoom, before the pandemic, and so we would have conference calls like this. I never really had met any of these people over the phone, uh, and I just had no idea what I was really getting myself into. I hadn't done any local intergroup service in AA, so I just didn't really know what any of it was. But it was a really interesting experience. I I love a business meeting. I like understanding the nuances and, like, the, the back end of of how we run and how we process, you know, the work that we do in our program. Um, So I quickly like took on service positions at the district level and I became the uh, treasurer. And so I served as treasurer for a year and then I I wanted to serve as the chairperson. So I did that for a year and then after serving as chairperson I stepped back into the treasurer role. I, along the way, you know, heard out about this, this conference. What's this conference? Well, the conference happened to be taking place in Seattle the year that I planned on attending, which is 2020. I was elected as a delegate. I had no idea what I was getting myself in, into. <laughs> My co-delegate didn't either. And unfortunately, we didn't have great service sponsorship. Like It was okay. We kind of got the basics, but um, not really fully understanding what we were getting ourselves into. So I just thought, hey, I'm going to get a free trip to Washington. This is going to be great. I have a friend that lives up there, and I'm going to go see her. Uh, Well, the pandemic hit, and plans shifted and pivoted very quickly, and the conference ended up being online. So I have never attended a conference in person, um, but I did have the pleasure of helping to host the convention, which is like our Fellowship Fund convention just this last year. And it was a really, really awesome experience to see everybody in person. I can really understand the value of getting together with everyone in a personal capacity. But back to the conference, that's our business meeting that we have. Um, It was interesting. It was really, really interesting to learn about what are the matters that affect MA as a whole. And I just, I soaked all of it up and we started to talk about the third legacy procedure, which is how we elect our trustees. And I just was like, well, I'm eligible. I don't really have a reason why I would take my name off. So I'm gonna just leave it up to my higher power as to whether I get elected or not, and we'll see what happens. So, If any of you ever experienced a third legacy procedure, essentially it's like we go in rounds of voting and we hope that everyone gets elected in maybe the first round, that doesn't always happen. And we can go up to five different rounds. But when you get to the tail end of this, sometimes you end up being uh, like where we have a hat and names get drawn out of the hat. So there were three different people's names in the hat with me in one position left. And my name was drawn out of the hat. And it was uh, an interesting moment for me, for higher power to draw my name out of a hat in that way. Um, so I became the service as a trustee, and it was a, a new trustee role that was created. It's called the correspondence trustee. Uh, essentially, it's kind of like the front desk of MA, uh, answering the 800 phone calls for support and emails that we receive. Um, I got to know everything there is to know about all of the different committees and what their purposes are and who does what and when do I need to forward a call to this person or another uh, and the meeting finder and all of the different districts and helping to provide information for newcomers. And it provided me with an amazing experience and an opportunity to be the first person who gets to speak to someone when they're inquiring about MA, um, which I really felt was such a gift especially because I, I didn't have that for myself. You know, I, I was lucky that I found it on a, on a message board, but um, to be able to provide someone with the information and let them know that like you're home, you're in the right place. Yes, you probably are gonna wanna use the 12 questions and see if you're a marijuana addict. That's up to your own determination. We can't tell you if you're an addict, etc. and help people to find meetings that might be a good fit for them. Um, it's, it was a really, really excellent experience. So I served for two years in that, in that role as correspondence trustee. Um, the first term as a trustee is for two years. And then after that, you have the opportunity to be reelected for two more terms that are one year in length. So you can serve for a total of four years. And then you have to take a year off if you choose to go back to um, go through the third legacy procedure and become elected again. Um, So my third year was at the conference this last year, and I was up for re-election. I was very grateful to be re-elected, and um, at that time, I chose to set myself as willing to serve as the president trustee. So we go through the process of where we simply elect trustees and then After the trustees are elected, we all meet in our first board meeting to discuss who's going to take what trustee roles, and we self-select those trustee roles given our skill sets. So with with all of the experience that I had had as correspondence trustee, I feel as though I had a very good grasp over our entire fellowship and how it functions. Um, And so I was very excited to take on this position and role in service as the president of our organization. Uh, it's really wild to me to sit back and think that, um, you know, after I've just reached five years this April, five years ago I was in a situation where I was in a locked psych unit throwing shoes at a wall, being like, I can be present if I want to. I knew there was more in me, but I couldn't get to it. The person that was standing in my way was me and my using marijuana. And today I, I look back at a journey that I've taken to not only discover myself, but reinvent myself and become the woman that I feel I, I want to be. And, I'm, and I feel as though I'm even beyond what I dreamt I could be, you know, as we talk about the promises coming true. And uh, it, it truly is a gift, what I've been given in sobriety, um, you know, it, it's just, it really is, it's beyond my wildest dreams and it's, we talk about these like cliche sayings, but they really do start to become full actions in your life. And I wouldn't have it if I wasn't so committed to our program, committed to be of service, committed to myself and my sobriety, to my family and showing up to be the best version of myself every single day. Um, I am just, I'm beyond grateful for the gift that MA has given me in, in this journey of recovery. Uh, Here soon we have the conference, it's gonna actually be starting next weekend and I'm gonna be chairing that conference. We have a lot of different agenda items but it's all really important business that we're going to be discussing including the fact that the phone meetings are seeking to become a district um, so, I really look forward to helping to facilitate that process. It's not often that when a district applies that the induction doesn't occur, so, you know, I'm saying this preemptively, but I look forward to the phone meetings being a, a full-fledged district and it's amazing all of the work that's being done in Mopum. Uh Yeah, I, it's just, it's so, so, so cool to be part of all of this. and. And the convention is just such an amazing facet. Um, back in 2020, when Ellie and I served as delegates originally, uh, there was no idea of who was going to host the convention. And um, we nominated District 20 to do it because it had never been done in District 20. The pandemic also kind of affected that in a little way. We got pushed back a year and District 8 uh, hosted it over Zoom, and then the following year we did it in, in San Diego. And it was amazing. It was it was a whole lot of work, but it was so, so, so worth it to see all of the fellows that I kind of only know from our little Zoom boxes, and talking with them on the phone, and meeting them in real life, um, and going through all of the different workshop experiences, and Just as they say, like we're not a glum lot. It was so fun to to be around everyone and the energy that came from that. Um, The convention this year is going to be hosted in Seattle. So since they couldn't host the conference in 2020, uh, District 4 uh, volunteered to host the convention this year, and that'll be over Labor Day weekend. Um, They've chosen the theme of the pillars of our program, which is unity, service, and recovery and each of those uh, workshops and events over the entire weekend are gonna fall into one of those veins of unity service or recovery. And I just, I really can't wait to get together with everyone. This is something that I for sure wanna plan and make sure that in my life I can go to the convention each year and see everyone. Um, I'm just, again, so, so grateful to be of service to our program if I can embark anything on you from hearing my story, is to please, please, please be of service. If it's something that you are intimidated by, or you think that maybe you're not ready for, I promise you that people are going to help you and hold your hand, and be willing to show you the way of service. I feel like it's it's something that our fellowship kind of struggles with is being of service and taking on service roles, um, but. It's a really, really important facet of our recovery, is stepping outside of ourselves, looking at something that's bigger than any of us, and ensuring that our program is available for the addict who doesn't know that they're an addict, um, or you know, even the addicts that haven't been born yet. Um, there's so much amazing work being done in the World Service Committees, and we always need more members to help be of service on those committees. They do set an example for committees that are at the district level, but the work there can also be very different. Um, We have some that could really use support right now, including like our website redesign, and we've just hired a new special worker, a web designer, so we have our webmaster. He does more of the back-end technical aspects of the website, so we have someone who's now working with us on front-end development to bring our website into the new era and refresh it. Uh, we also have a social media subcommittee. We have an Instagram presence and also on Facebook so that we can help to reach as many addicts as possible. And we definitely need more people to help with uh, those subcommittees as well, but we've You know, they're across the board. We have literature translations that are being worked on, um, including French is one of the more recent ones that's coming out. But there's also a a Farsi translation that's in in the works and Spanish. Um, Let's see, we have the H&I efforts in terms of hospitals and institutions. Um, if you're ever interested in setting up a panel in your area or reaching out to you know, a rehab facility and offering support or information about MA, that's some of the most amazing work that we can do. But it's also a service for us to just show up in meetings and share. And uh, the service opportunities are endless. It's really important to find one that, that you, know, you feel fits you best. Um, I can mention a ton of places where services need, need to get extra support, but at the end of the day, if you're not passionate about the work that you're doing in service, then it, you're just not going to want to do it. And so we want to help you find, find the right fit for you. Um, so if you ever have any questions about that, please like reach out to any of us at World Service or any of the trustees. We're always excited to meet new folks who want to learn more. And when you say, I want to attend a committee meeting, it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, you're signing your life away. Uh, you can go for one or two or see what, what works for you. Um, as, out of the conference, we kind of Start, well, when I say out of the conference, I mean like just after the conference, committee meeting schedules kind of tend to change depending upon how many new trustees are, are coming in and what everyone's schedule is. So if it's a schedule accommodation and you really want to be of service in the committee, then please let the trustee know and they'll do their best to help find a committee meeting time that works for everyone um, and, and keep you engaged in, in the committees. Um, I'm not really sure what else to to share on, but I I think that that's uh probably probably plenty of this time. I hope that you know this has brought you some sort of encouragement to to our program and being in service. And if there's anything that uh, I shared about that doesn't hit home for you, then that's okay, and maybe talk to your sponsor about that. But if it does, then please, yeah, get engaged and. Uh, and persevere in our program because there's a lot of areas and, and room for, for growth in service, including like having ideas and starting something different that you wanna, that you think would be something that we need. Like we love to get ideas like that as well. Um, anyways, thank you so much for letting me share and having me as your speaker for the Saturday Night Live meeting. And I, I hope that you all have an awesome evening.